So this is going to Southern, so if you speak up in class, the microphone will pick you up. And so I will take that as your consent to be used as part of my class assignment. Um, we're going to be in Philippians uh, chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. Obviously, we're not preaching through the book of Philippians, so uh, we'll do a quick introduction in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, uh, just kind of set up where we're going in chapter 2. So remember, at this time, uh, Paul is in prison. Uh, he's in prison for the gospel. He's writing to the Philippian church. The city of Philippi is a, is a military type of city. So there's a strong presence of the Roman government, a strong presence, there's military throughout the city. Uh, they're facing persecution. So in, in chapter 1, verse 27, uh, Paul kind of wraps up his introduction by saying, just one thing, live your life in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you're standing firm and in one spirit with one mind working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance, and this is from God. For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. And so he kind of gives them three things leading into the rest of the book. He says, one, I want to see you live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what he says in chapter 2 is how we're going to live in that manner worthy. Um, and the chapter 2 section largely deals with this, having unity through humility. And so he says in this introduction section that he wants to see them standing firm in one spirit and one mind. We're going to see that theme throughout chapter 2. Um, and then working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel in the face of opposition. So just as Paul is in prison right now, the, the Philippians are also seeing a lot of persecution. They're being tempted to splinter, to, to be set apart. And so he says, in the face of opposition, like I'm currently experiencing, and also like you saw me experience, I want you to stay unified. And that's how he opens up chapter 2. So let's jump into chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Um, we're going to just start with verses 1 and 2, though. So Paul then says, again, in mind of having uh, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, he says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, and focusing on one goal. So let's break apart this kind of rhetorical question. So he starts off with, if... There is any encouragement in Christ. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, uh, For as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so through Christ our comfort also overflows. So it's kind of a two-handed thing. He says, we're being persecuted because of Christ. We know that because of Christ, we are suffering, we're taking all of this you know, damage from the outside, but... Because of Christ also, we're being comforted. So when he's saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, he's not saying, well, do you think there is? Do we feel like there is? It's rhetorical. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. We've all been encouraged in Christ. Even though we're suffering for him, we found his encouragement to be far better. So he says then, if any consolation of love. 
Um, again, here's two verses you don't have to turn to, but Romans 5.8, this is a common one. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Paul talks about love, usually he's talking about it in terms of God the Father. So we see encouragement in Christ, and then love of God the Father. In 2 Thessalonians 2.16, he says, God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement. Um, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. When we see the love of God coming down to earth, it is usually attributed to God the Father. So we have encouragement in Christ. We have love of God the Father. And then he continues and he says, in the rest of verse 1, if any fellowship in the Spirit... Uh, let's turn to. Can somebody read uh, Ephesians three? Or I'm sorry, Ephesians four, three through six. Can somebody get that for me? Yeah, great. And then First uh, Corinthians twelve thirteen. Can somebody get First Corinthians twelve thirteen? Three through six. Yeah. Uh, it says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. So he's saying, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, well, we know that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Um, if you've ever been part of any uh, corporate team building exercises, they say, oh, you know, we need to be unified. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do trust falls because that clearly builds unity. I'm not really sure how trust falling is supposed to build unity. Um, but we don't have to do that because when we are saved, we are baptized into the spirit and we are unified to begin with. We are called to maintain the unity, not create the unity, not manufacture the unity, but we're unified to begin with. And the unity, if there's disunity, it's not because the spirit wasn't there, it's because we've done something to, to break the unity that is already provided to us in the spirit. So, again, rhetorical questions, but encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, God the Father, fellowship of the spirit. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Um, says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Again, we see that we are unified in the spirit. We're baptized in the spirit. And here we have Paul laying out the Trinity and how the Trinity is, is actually applying to our unity. We have God the Father. We have Christ. We have the spirit. And he opens saying, are these things true about God? Of course they're true. And so he adds, if there's any affection and mercy, do you have any love for the people around you, for your brothers and sisters Christ, and we know that love's not something that we're manufacturing, right? That's, that's coming from God. So he's opening, saying, remember God. Remember what he's done for us. Remember his encouragement, his comfort. Remember the fellowship that you have. And so then he continues and says, if that's true, then do this, okay? He says, fulfill my joy. And he tells us what unity is going to look like. By thinking the same way, setting your mind on the same thing, or thinking the same way, having the same love, Sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Um, some of you in that last section have uh, something about the mind, having one mind. And so Paul actually kind of brackets this. He goes, thinking with your mind, then he goes, 
love, and then feelings, and then back to mind again. So he's going mind, mind, and then like feelings in the middle. And so what he's saying here is we want to be setting our minds on the same thing. Now, this does not necessarily look like conformity. When we're talking about having the same mind, it's not that we all have to agree on everything. Uh, you see some of those like cultish type like churches where the pastor's like the head honcho and then like any advice runs through the pastor and everybody has to kind of line up and wait their turn to talk to the pastor and say, well, what should we do about this? What should we do about that? And if you deviate, then you get either brought back in line with the exact thinking of the church or you're excommunicated for deviating in any way, shape, or form. Uh, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying the same direction of thought. We all are coming from different areas in life, different perspectives, different upbringings. We're all starting from different points, but our direction should all be pointing from wherever we're coming from towards Christ. And that's where the unity is. That whatever decisions I'm making, they might be different than your decisions, but they're made with a mindset of I'm heading towards Christ, I'm heading towards the gospel, towards fellowship. So it doesn't have to be the same. Just so long we're doing it with the same heart and heading in the same direction. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that you can sin and be like, oh, I'm heading towards God. Clearly not. Okay? But, but the idea here is that we don't have to agree on every single thing, every single point. We can still have unity. And so he says, have this mind, same mind, same love, same feeling, and then back to same mind again. Um, okay, so that's what it looks like. So let's talk about how to live in humility. This is the easy part, right? Living in humility. Um, let's look at verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit or maybe vainglory there. Um, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Uh, so let's zoom in on this do nothing out of rivalry or vainglory or conceit. Um, let's look back at Philippians 1, 5, uh, 15 through 17. Is just that page. Um, so Paul's in prison, right? And you would think that the church would be really upset. Like, Paul's in prison. He's been preaching the word. He's been faithful. And what Paul says is, actually, some people are kind of glad he's in prison. They're saying, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others for goodwill. Uh, these do so out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. So I, I find this really funny. They're like, oh, we're going to get Paul. You know how we're going to get him? We're going to preach the gospel. And we're going to preach it so well. And so like, he's like, they're literally trying to like make me upset by how they're preaching in, in a self, like expanding my glory. Expanding my numbers, having a bigger church. I want me to be the focus, and I'm going to preach the gospel. And so they said, you know, Paul's in prison. His time is done. It's my time to shine. He's been getting all this credit. It's time for me to be the center stage. Um, and so when he's saying, not out of rivalry or vainglory, he's looking back to what he just said in chapter 1, saying, look, some people are using even the gospel for their own purposes, um, which is the insidiousness of our hearts, right? That we can take even a perfect, good, and pure thing and somehow turn it for our own glory. Um, so he says, don't do anything like that. Instead, consider, uh, let's look back at chapter 2 or in verse 3 and 4. Instead, in humility, consider others as more important than ourselves. Um, so, let's talk about what he means by humility. Uh, 
when we are supposed to consider others as more important than yourselves, um, we don't need to play these like silly mind games to consider that we're like worse than somebody. Um, sometimes we think of humility as being like, oh, like I'm just not very good at that, and I'm just not very good at this, and like just like really downgrading yourself. So when we're about to go into the main service, and we're singing. Wives, mostly wives, perhaps there's a husband here, this is Wives, when you're singing and your husband is flat or sharp, or possibly flat and sharp sometimes in the same part, you don't have to pretend that you're a worse singer. Well, they're more important than me and I can never sing as well as my husband. Okay, that's true in our relationship. Uh, it's just, it's a mess. Um, joyful noise, that's what, that's what we're going for. Um, so you don't have to do that. Paul explains what he means by humility. Uh, he says everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also the interests of others. So C.S. Lewis says this. He said that a humble man will not be thinking about humility or, you know, be like, wow, how low, low, is it, low am I? Like, how poor am I? All that. He says he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. The point of humility is that we're considering others, or my focus isn't here, because even in saying, oh, how, look how bad I am, and how poor I am, and how, it's still looking at me, like, it's still the problem. We can be just as self-interested in, look how great I am, as, I, as look at how woe to me, and how poor I am, look how bad of a sinner I am, and everything is just kind of focused on me. The point of humility is that we're, we're turning our gaze outward, we're forgetting ourselves in the pursuit of other people. So, um, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but the interests of others. Uh, this is really easy to do if the interest of others corresponds with your interests. Um, and that's not bad, right? So if you're carpooling somebody to work, and they say, hey man, could you carpool me? And they live two minutes down the road. Sure, you're looking out for the interests of others, that's great, but it didn't really cost you anything, which is fine, it doesn't have to, it's not like you have to make it cost you something. But it's a lot more loving if the person lives 30 minutes away, and that means you have to get up an extra hour early to go pick them up and head back. Um, or uh, I think one of the places where this shows up, where looking out for others' interests is in conflict with our interests, is uh, disciplining children. If you're in the store, you're tired, you're exhausted, your child is freaking out because they can't get the candy bar they want or whatever it is that kids are crying about, maybe their hatchable or whatever they, they want these days. Um, oh, it's not um, <laughs> so whatever it is, you know, they're freaking out, they're throwing a tantrum, they want the candy bar, and the easy thing to do is, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I don't have time for this, here's the candy bar, you know, be quiet, we need to get on with my day. Okay, or I'm watching the football game, stop asking me all these questions, clean your room like I told you to, like get out of here, I'm watching the game, I'm not interested in disciplining you because I don't want to be inconvenienced. You're getting in the way of my interests. But what do we know is right for the child? What's right for the child is discipline, even if it's super inconvenient. They don't, kids don't sin when it's really convenient for us. We're like, oh good, I had a lot of 30 minutes of, of spanking and talking time. Like, it's not really how kids work. They just freak out and you're like, okay, well I gotta do something about this. And we can be tempted to kind of sweep it under the rug or just apply a quick fix but we're not looking at what's best for our children. Our best for our children is that we're going to take the time out of our day. We're going to discipline it fairly and appropriately. Um, 
And so, again, where our interests and their interests are, are conflicting, we have to be willing to put aside what we want and be willing to, to do what is necessary. Um, and this is, in, there's a million different examples we could pick. But we'll keep moving. So, in this passage, we're going to see, including through 11, we're going to see three examples of humility leading to unity. And here we see the first one. Um, if you caught it in verse 2, Paul says, if all the stuff about God is true, then do this. But he inserts this little piece in verse 2. He says, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way. Paul's sitting in prison. Rats, diseases, falsely accused, beaten. And he says, you know what I need for my joy? I need your spiritual maturity. I don't know. That's not what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, get me out of this prison. Like I need to be back preaching. He says, you know what I need to be happy in my life? I need the benefit of those around me. He's doing what he's very, the very thing he's telling us to do. He's not doing it out of rivalry or conceit. And if we go back to chapter 1, with all these people preaching against him, verse 18, he says, all these people are preaching against me, he says, what does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. People are actively trying to bother him. But because Paul's not living in rivalry or conceit, he's not worried about his kingdom and his following, he says, look, we can be unified on one thing, the gospel, and I can be content to know that they're preaching the gospel. And I'm not saying that this is a model that you should be you know, doing it out of rivalry or conceit, but the gospel is above all else. So, um, it's a challenge to our life. How many of us can honestly say that our joy and happiness is dependent on the spiritual success of others. I, I think that's that's hard for me to say that I'm, I'm confident that that's where my joy and success comes from. That like, I can't be happy, I can't be joyful unless those around me are spiritually growing. That I don't know that that's where I've placed my joy. And if we are living this passage the way we ought to, that's what it's going to look like, ultimately. Not just with discipline for our kids, not just with helping out our coworker. It's going to look like I'm concerned not just about your how do you have money, do you have food. I'm concerned about where is your eternal soul at, and are you growing, and more than just the pleasantries of how you doing. Oh, life's great, all of that. All right, so um, let's jump into the super. I mean, Bible's all super awesome. This is really awesome. All right, so verses uh, five through eleven. So. Paul then paints us a picture of Christ doing this very thing. Make your own attitude, or you might have mind there. Um, the same word that he said, have one mind in verses 2. He's going to jump here in verse 5 and again go back to this mind idea. Make your mind or attitude that of Christ Jesus. And he says, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Alright, so, we look at, let's look at this word form. Existing in the form of God. This word form doesn't mean that it's a mold or a copy or that he's kind of like God but not God. It means matching in essential elements. Um, 
Now this, who has a different, I have um, equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Does somebody have a different translation there in verse 6? Different wording, yeah. Uh, to be grasped. Okay, to be grasped. Uh, what else? There's, a, there's another problem. Is there another one? Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal. Yeah, robbery. God. Those are so. This is a tricky word. Sometimes it's robbery to be grasped, be taken to his advantage. Word meaning like that you grab it selfishly, that it's used for me and my advantage. So his equality with God, um, not used for his own advantage or grabbed for sometimes robbery. But again, that idea of robbery is just being selfish and hanging on to self, self uplifting or self whatever. Um, same here. When he's talking about the robbery of God, the equality with God, it's not something that Jesus hung on to for his own personal benefit or to his own advantage. Um, so instead, he emptied himself. And how did he do so? He said that a lot of people will say that he either gave up, like maybe he up his godhood or part of his godhood. Some of the first heresies in the in the early church were either that God was Jesus was fully God, but he wouldn't degrade himself by becoming fully human, or that Jesus became fully human, but he wasn't fully God. And generally people will deny either Jesus' godhood or they'll deny his his manhood. Recently, most commonly it's that we we accept his manhood and deny his godhood. He was a good preacher, he was a good you know, prophet, but he wasn't God. And so instead he emptied himself, not by giving up something, but instead by taking on the likeness of man. So it's an, a subtraction by addition. So um, used to work at camp. I'm pretty good at foosball. Played a lot of campers. They're trash. They just sit there and they like spin the, the foosball things. Like they're just totally garbage. And so like I would play and I would just crush them and it was no fun for them. It was a lot of fun for me. So what I would do is I'd pick like the worst kid I could find and I'd put him on goal. There's a zero percent chance they're gonna block anything on goal. And they're like they're like just moving them back and forth and you know getting scored on. And so Weakening yourself by addition, not by taking something away, but by adding something on to create weakness. So in this case, he weakens himself, he empties himself, not by giving up his deity, but by assuming our humanity, assuming the weakness that is humanity. Um, and he comes as a man in his external form. Look, this word form is the same word that's used for form in verse 6. The form of God, the form of man. So... We were just sharing the gospel with a bunch of Jehovah Witnesses uh, that were her family, and they want to deny the deity of Christ. Well, it, this is a great passage to go to. If you want to just kind of argue your way around the word form and say, well, form of God, you know, that's not really like God, well, then what are you saying form of man? Whatever he was in manhood, he was also in godhood. And so if you're going to deny his deity from this passage, then you're also denying his humanity. And if he's not human and he's not God, then, then what is he? He's, we'll accept that he's one or the other. This passage clearly says, form of God, form of man. Either he's all man and all God, or he's neither, and that makes no sense. He was clearly at least one of them, so he must be both. So this is a passage that's super clear on the deity of Christ. Um, so he humbled himself in verse 8 by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, we see that he is submitting to God. And, and this whole passage is how he humbled himself. He didn't just humble himself to become humanity. He humbled himself to be a slave. And even to go so far as to become, to die, and to die in a way that is accursed, a way that is 
it, it's not a symbol, the cross is not a symbol of faith here. Like they just see it as death, a horrible death. So that's the death to which he humbled himself. And then we get to see the fulfillment of unity because of his humbling in verses 9 through 11. For this reason, his humility, his humbling, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, the structure of verses 9 through 11 is, is chiastic, and we're not going to jump too far into it, but it, it's like stair-stepping from top and bottom. So the top and bottom we see um, God highly exalted him in the glory of God the Father. And then the next step, we see God gave him the name, and then from the bottom, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name he gave him. Um, and then at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and a step up, every tongue will confess. And then in the middle we have those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so it's kind of going down to, to all people and then back down to the glory of God. Glory of God for all people, back to the glory of God. Um, just kind of a cool thing. Um, and it's kind of pointing to who all is unified in Christ's humility. Those who are in heaven, spiritual beings. Those on earth, those alive. Those under the earth, those dead. Christ's humility didn't just unify the church. It's unifying all people at the end of days that together in one voice we are proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Yahweh, that he is God. Um, Christ is, is our second example here of humility leading to unity. The first one we see is Paul saying, look, like it's the gospel. You're my joy if you're mature. The second one we see is Christ comes down from heaven to unify us, to reconcile all things to himself, to bring us into good standing with God, and that one day we will all, in one accord, shout that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, that he is Lord. Alright, so, that's two, and we've come to the end of the passage. So let's look at the third one. Let's, let's zoom in on verse 11 here. Uh, so, verse 11 says, Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. So, uh, if we look at every tongue confess, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says that, therefore I am informing you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And here's the key part. And no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, if we're all shouting that Jesus Christ is Lord, every tongue is confessing that. That's the work of the Spirit. Jesus Christ is Lord. Here we have Jesus Christ. And if we look in um, Isaiah 45, you don't have to turn there, 45, 22 and 23. It says, Turn to me to be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. I am God. And there is no other. This is another excellent passage to turn to for the deity of Christ. I am God. There is no other. Every knee will bow. This is exactly what Paul's pointing to. He's going back to Isaiah saying, this thing that's talked about God, it's the same thing that's talked about Jesus. And we see Jesus' submission. Why is Jesus doing this? To the glory of God the Father. We see the actions of the Spirit, every tongue confessing. 
We see the submission of Jesus to the Godhead. And we see the glory of God the Father. So Paul opens with the Trinity. Paul closes with the Trinity. And in the Trinity, we see our greatest example of unity. We see God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together in perfect unity with one mind and one spirit. One as God, working together. And to, to me, that's, that's just amazing. You see Paul clearly setting this up, seeing the unity of the Trinity, seeing the unity of Christ that he brings, and then seeing even Paul by his own example. All right, so that's all super great and awesome, but where does that apply to me? Uh, I will leave you with, with two, two quick applications uh, of this passage. First one. We need to forsake fairness. Um, and let me explain what I mean by that. We, in this culture, are, we love fairness. It's, it's a huge deal that everything is fair. Uh, NFL is back. Praise God. <laughs> it's back. Um, and every year, there's these huge debates about, like, whoa, well, that's not fair. He got pushed in the back, and they didn't throw the flag. What are we going to do about it? And so, like, what we'll do is, like, they throw it in the end zone. He bobbles it. And now we'll spend, we'll stop the game for 15 minutes. And we'll take, well, what about this camera angle? Is his knee down? Well, what about this one? Did he get both feet in? Well, was he have full possession of the ball? And we spend 15 minutes, like, arguing with the tiny little semantics and make sure that we get it exactly right. Compare that to football or soccer, not Americans in any way. Okay, so you kick the ball out of bounds. They pick up the ball and they go, I don't know, I'm going to walk down here. Uh, maybe I'll walk back this way. I'll throw it out here. And like, if you watch where the ball goes out and where they kick and they throw it back in, it's like a huge distance. And then when the game's supposed to end, then the ref's like, I feel like three minutes. No, maybe that four minutes. We're going to add four minutes onto the end of this thing. And then the, the, the four minutes come up, but this game still doesn't end. And it's like, I don't know. We're going to give it another 30 seconds. We'll just see how this thing plays out. Like, it's like totally different, okay? And so in our sports, our cultures are revealed, right? And so in American football, we're very concerned that we're very accurate. We're very fair. Um, and you see that in kind of the lawsuit culture. If something bad happens to me, like, it needs to be made right. And somebody needs to pay to, because it's not fair that this thing happened to me. And insurance is trying to do that, too. And we have all these safeguards in society to make sure things stay fair. Um, now, that is not according to the gospel. Now, fairness is good. I'm not saying we don't be, strive for fairness. But if you are honestly seeking the interest of others, there's going to be many times it's not fair. There's going to be many times where you're not rewarded. There's going to be many times you find yourself doing more work or going the extra mile and having no reciprocation of gratitude, no visible outcome. And it can be easy to become very discouraged very quickly if, again, vainglory, my kingdom, when I help others and it doesn't help my kingdom, then I get upset because it's not helping me. We see this in marriage all the time, right? Well, I served you, but then I didn't get the thing that I wanted. So even in my service, it's still about this kingdom here, my kingdom, my desires, my wants. So we have to forsake fairness. Say, look, it's not going to be fair. It's okay. I know the coming, the coming goodness and the unity of the church is a far better reward than what I personally get. And the second one um, is we need to fight fissures. Uh, we are headed into another political season, and I have no interest in getting political here. All I'm saying is next 14 months, we're going to head increasingly into a divided time. Um, and we have to be on guard against divisions because of political views. Um, 
and again, I'm not taking any sides here, but we don't have to agree as a body on immigration, on building a wall, on gun control. That you may have a different view than somebody else within the church. But those issues should never divide us from the unity of the body. Whatever our views and wherever they contrast each other, we are still called to be unified together in the focus of one goal. Jesus Christ is our ultimate Lord. In a city surrounded by Caesar being Lord, Jesus says, no, I am Lord. Caesar is not Lord. And we are unified under the Lord Caesar, not under a political party, not under a president. We are unified together under God. And whether we disagree about those things, the direction of our thoughts should be towards the gospel, and our actions should emulate Christ's example of humility and serving others. And in that, we can be unified. Uh, and with that, let's close. God, you are good. You are so good. And we see it in this passage how you take our hearts and you point them in the direction of the gospel. You ask us to humble ourselves. You don't just ask us to humble ourselves. You show us what that looks like. And Christ did it. He did the ultimate thing in humility. The ultimate humbling that he could do. He went from God to man to death. And for that we are grateful. And for all eternity we will be grateful. And we look forward to the day that you unify all things. I pray that as um, in a culture that's fractured. In a culture that is angry and divisive, that we would stand out for our love for each other, our willingness to serve, our unification, because we are all pursuing the gospel. Um, thank you for the goodness that you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.